We turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Our community is, of course, uh, goes without saying, very wealthy at the moment, even though we might have the highest unemployment since the war and all the rest of it. We still really are very wealthy. Um, it's un quite unlike the characteristics of the Depression, when people were very poor, even when they were at work. But men were working only two or three days a week and they were poor all the time, whereas now we might have a large number unemployed, but those who are employed are very well off, as can be seen by the way in which they spend their monies on flying planes over our head during church and uh, other exercises of their weekend futilities. As we've grown in wealth, so we've taken on the attitudes of the wealthy, especially as most of us do not come from hereditary wealth, I presume, I don't know, but I presume that is the case. Most of us have uh, risen there by our family's dint of efforts, by our encouragements into careers that will make more money and have greater status. So we have developed certain value structures that come with being the wealthy, especially being the new wealthy. And they're value structures and systems of ideas and, and attitudes which are quite pagan. However, we've baptised them, we Christianise them, we seek to, uh, to make them acceptable within the framework of Christian belief because we do live in two worlds and we're always in that tension of being in this world with its value systems and yet in the kingdom of heaven with its value systems and being imperfect. We find difficulty in, in being able to see the error of our ways and the value systems we carry from our paganism. Tonight's going to be hard, really, because I'm going to suggest some things that I, I suspect more than in most sermons you, you will, you'll feel uh, that you want to disagree with. And that makes it hard for me, because I don't actually want to be disagreeable with people. However, it seems to me that it's an important subject for us to consider because we are the ones who are most caught up in this particular problem, although we're caught up in it in the exact reverse end than the Thessalonians. The exact reverse end, I would suspect. Within the Bible... The, the advice you get about which career to follow is very simple. You must work and you mustn't do things like being a thief. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. So as a Christian, you see, you can't be a thief. You can't be a hitman for the mafia. There are certain jobs like that which are ruled out. But basically, the important thing is that you work, not which occupation you follow. That might seem fairly straightforward and simple, but I want to place it within the context of this epistle <coughs> and indeed within the context of evangelism because almost side by side, well certainly side by side, but almost incidentally, Paul raises the question of evangelism in the opening verses of this chapter and work in the middle section of the chapter. If we can think back about the whole of the epistle as a whole, we'll notice that, that it has been about the Lord's triumph. The victory he won at Calvary is not really spelt out very greatly, but that victory is being declared through the gospel, it's being implemented through the gospel, so people, God is calling people to salvation through the gospel, because in the end that victory is going to be revealed, the Lord is going to be revealed from heaven, bringing his judgment upon the whole world. That much is very clear. The future of history, if you don't, like, don't mind the uh, oxymoron involved in such a phrase, the future of history is clear. The Lord is to be revealed from heaven. And at that time, at the time which he is revealed, all men will see him and his justice will be executed upon the earth. For those who are unbelievers, that is unbelievers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be the wrath of God. They will, they will get what they always wanted, namely to be separated from God. 
to live their life without God. That is precisely what will happen to them. They will be cast away from God to live their life without him forever. For those who are believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will share in the victory of God, in the victory of Christ. They will share in his glory. They will be changed into his likeness. And there, because of their belief in the gospel, they will experience the great joy of fellowship with Christ forever. Neither the unbelievers nor the believers are living this lifetime independent of God. For God reinforces unbelief, as we saw last week in chapter 2, and he has called believers into their faith through the gospel. God is at work, even in this present time, to bring about that grand plan for the end time. But while that might be the case, while it might be clear that that is the way the world ends, not with a bang, with a whimper, it's the reverse of that, with a bang, not a whimper, while you can see that is the way it is going to end, Yet, what's happening in the meantime is not so clear. It actually is a little bit on the muddled side. For here's Paul, the great proclaimer of the victory of God, being pushed around in one town after another, persecuted, thrown out stones, thrown in prisons, beaten up with rods, etc. That doesn't look so crash hot, does it? And the Thessalonians, who have accepted the gospel of the victory of Jesus Christ, have been persecuted consistently ever since. It really doesn't look like that they're on the winning side just at the moment. Now Paul prays, Paul asks them for prayer in this opening verse. And he prayer is twofold, one for the word of God and the other for the messengers. The word of God is the gospel. It's a common Pauline expression to describe the gospel, the word of the Lord, the proclamation of the great news of Jesus Christ. And he prays in a sense personifying the word of the Lord that it might speed on and triumph. Uh, that it might run, that the word of God might run across the land, unhindered and unfettered, like we read in that psalm, 147 verses 15 and following, where God says that his word goes forth and changes the nature of the world and what's happening in the seasons and so forth, that the word of God might run on with that kind of power, that nothing might get in its way and slow it down and stop it in the slightest, and that it might be glorified. The RSV translates that, might be triumph. And that is right in its intention. The word is actually to be glorified. That is, that as the word of God goes travelling throughout the Mediterranean and ancient world, men and women might be conquered by it. And as they're conquered by it, they will turn and glorify God for the great news of Jesus Christ. As we read the Gentiles do in Acts 13.48, when they hear the great news of their salvation, they praise the word of God. They are thankful that such a word should come to them. How sweet is that news that Jesus Christ saves me, that I need not continue in my condemnation, that I am fully pardoned. It's a marvellous message. They praise God because it conquers them. And so Paul asks that God's word may not be shut up, but might spread throughout the world with great haste, unfettered and unhindered, and as it goes, conquer the hearts of the world. Now, that of course has happened amongst the Thessalonians. He wants it everywhere. Because of that, he wants also prayers for the messengers. That he might be delivered, just as they are going to be delivered on the last day by Jesus, from the wrath that's come, that he might be delivered from the men who are the, the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he might be set free, not so much for his own personal safety, because he's a man who seems to show no great concern for that, but so that the gospel message may not be, may not be hindered. That he might be set free from such men, whose wickedness and evil actually stems from the fact that they're faithless, 
that hearing the gospel, they've rejected it. They are not men of faith. And if you reject the gospel, you cannot help but become an opponent of the gospel. And as you, op- as you oppose the gospel, so you will oppose gospel preachers. Now, that is always around about us, people who oppose gospel preachers. One of the colleges I rang up this week said that they didn't want us to come around and deliver Bibles from door to door. In fact, they have prevented us from doing that. That is, people do not like the gospel of Jesus. They do not like the Bible. So you're not allowed to actually share that around. That has been censored. It will always be censored by people because people do not like it. Why don't they like it? Because they've refused it. And once you refuse it, then you can't leave it as something neutral. You're in opposition to it. And Paul says, we pray, pray that we might be spared from, uh, and delivered from wicked and evil men because they are not men of faith. It may be that he has a particular situation in mind in that he talks about delivered in a particular aorist tense of the Greek verb, which may mean that there's one situation he knows that they know about and he's asking to be delivered from that. But with Paul's life, that prayer would fit any old time. For all through his life, he needed to be delivered from men who were in opposition to the gospel. And mercifully, that prayer would have been answered many times. Once having raised the faithlessness of men that can lead them to do that which is so evil, Paul gives an, Paul makes a sudden and dramatic change in verse 3 to look at the faithfulness of God. It's a cardinal doctrine of the whole Bible that God is faithful. He is a reliable, dependable person. In fact, it's a great help to our faith to know that he is faithful. Who wants to put faith in one that cannot be relied upon? Who wants to depend on someone who is not dependable? And so the character of God, that he is dependable, he is reliable, and so we can firmly put our faith in him. And here is Paul faced with persecution, faced with his young church, faced with persecution. And yet he says, never mind, although there are faithless men who are doing these evil things, yet we can have faith in God because God is faithful. Though men are not faithful by any means, though we may be persecuted, God has not failed us yet. There will be purpose and plan in that because God's plan for the whole world is, is the victory of Jesus Christ. And God is faithful. He will not allow us to be moved. Therefore, hang on. Let me illustrate that from a current, uh, uh, a current situation. It's slightly different. But it's the same attitude of faith which stems from grasping hold of the faithfulness of God. This is not a situation of persecution for the sake of the gospel, particularly and explicitly. But in The Sun on Friday night, there was an interview with Mrs Mackay, who is the widow, presumably, of Donald Mackay, the man uh, in Griffith, who was concerned with drugs. And now, if you read the interview, it was very beautiful. It actually brought tears to my eyes as I was reading it. She says, on being asked about uh, the situation, which is very terrible, she has a three-year-old who is in, in hospital at the moment because of uh, the emotional strain in the family, amongst other things, He says, Don and I, long ago, placed our trust in Jesus. I know he has carried us through before and will again. Later she says, I have a true faith in Jesus and I know that he has not failed me before and will not again. So once you see God as faithful, then even though the circumstances of life might be pointing in the opposite direction, you can say, well, God is faithful. He will see me through this somehow. I don't understand the situation now. It's going against the current of what the end point of history is all about. But somewhere, God will be working his purposes out. And so although men may be faithless and attacking and persecuting Paul and his young church, yet he says, never mind, God is faithful. And therefore I have confidence, he says. We have confidence, not concerning his own life, very interestingly, 
But we have confidence in you. No, we have confidence in the Lord about you. You never put your confidence in a Christian. They fail regularly. You mustn't do that. You mustn't put your trust in me. Disaster area to put your trust in me. You mustn't do that. You must put your trust in God. He doesn't fail. Put your trust in areas where they don't fail. I and mean, if you know that chair is going to fail, you wouldn't sit on it, would you? Its very reliability is essential for you to sit on it. May I suggest you don't sit on the railing up there. It is totally unreliable. Sometimes it holds your weight and sometimes it doesn't. It is an unreliable railing. It's not good for sitting on. Don't tie your horses up to it either for the same reason. But God is reliable. So you can always put your trust and firm foundation in Him. So, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Because He knows that God will guard them that God will strengthen them. Interesting Greek verb comes from the idea of buttressing. Right? Buttressing up the building to strengthen them. God will strengthen them and protect them, put a guard around about them. And so he has confidence in the Lord that they will be doing what he has commanded, namely the will of God, to do the good things that he has commanded. And then he prays that God may direct them, direct their hearts towards the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Direct their hearts so that they might think about, they might ponder on, they might set their minds on the way in which God loves them. They might rest their strength, their security, their hope and their foundation in the fact that God loves them, in the fact that Christ is a faithful, steadfast person. He's not someone who turned away from the cross. He's someone who is willing to be obedient even under the persecutions and trials he went through. He is a steadfast, stable person. And as you put your trust and confidence in the love of God for you, in the steadfastness of Christ, so you will indeed duplicate that same love, that same steadfastness in the situation you're in. So he encourages them and prays for them that God might direct their hearts to the love of God, to the steadfastness of Christ. Beautiful little prayer verse 5 there, isn't it? Mark that one and learn it off by heart sometime. And when you doubt what to pray for about another person, pray that one for them. Might do them any harm at all. In fact, you can pray that one for me every day of your life if you want to. I'd certainly love you to. Now, in that context, having spelled out that, he then raises the question of work, which was one of the reasons in which he wrote this epistle, it would seem. Apparently, some people are not working in the congregation. They're living in idleness. We don't know the purpose, the reason why they're not working. But, as he wants them to live in accordance with the commands he's given, he now reminds them of one of those commands. Namely, that there are idle people there and he has commanded them to be working. Now notice Paul in his attitude here. It's a clear command, he says. He could have referred back to many things in the Bible here. Our Genesis study shows that work is part of the creation of man. We know that work is of the character of God who worked six days and rested one. Indeed, we're commanded to follow that pattern of working six days and resting one. But Paul speaks of authoritatively the authority of Jesus Christ and commands them to get back to work. And he says that I commanded that thing, in verse 10 he says, I commanded that thing when I was with you, that you're to work. And furthermore, he gives an example of work. For although being a preacher of the gospel, he needn't work, he could have lived from the, uh, from the benefits of the other Christians around about, as indeed I do, yet he didn't do that. He chose to continue to work amongst the Thessalonians so as to give them the example of Christians working, so as not to burden any of them. He worked to set them that example. So, work, the right and proper thing that they must get on with. 
I said earlier that I thought this was the, our problem with the exact opposite of the problems of Thessalonians. This end of the session, some of you might feel this is directly, exactly the same problem as the Thessalonians. The need to be encouraged to work. That is the case. Make sure it's a clear command here that the Christian and right thing to do is to be a worker. That is a Christian and right and appropriate thing, fully consistent with the character and purposes of God. He then gives a rationale for work in amongst that command to work. And there's three reasons for work. One is so that you won't be busybodies, because idlers will be busybodies. He actually has a pun on the word there. He says that, you're, that these people, in verse 11, are not busy, but busybodies. It's that kind of pun. We uh, don't translate it like that. We have, uh, they're living in idleness, mere busybodies. He's trying to say, you know, these people, not busy, they're busybodies. And idlers have that way. They've got more time on their hands than they know what to do with. But they're, not, uh, they're, they're not at work because they don't choose to. It's got nothing to do with being sick or old or feeble. So they've got more energies than they know what to do with. So they meddle in matters that are none of their business. They go interfering with other people, go around gossiping and telling tales and actually being quite destructive. He says, idling is no good. That's a bad thing for you. You get back to work. Keep yourself occupied. Um, that's a reason for working. It's a good, right thing for man to work. He gives the same advice to young widows in 1 Timothy 5.13, that uh, they mustn't then go on the pension, but get another husband and have another family so that they can be busy. Second reason is that they are is to do with eating and living. Eating is a disgusting habit that most of us seem to pick up when we're very early in life. We find hard to resist and overcome. Some have tried, especially the IRA in prisons and other places, to the detriment of their health. Now, it seems a fairly obvious thing to say, but the reason for actually working he's giving is eating. If someone's not willing to uh, work, then they shouldn't be eating either. That's the reason for working to actually feed your face so as to keep you alive. And the third reason he gives for work is so that you won't be a burden on the Christian community, sponging off other people, so that you might earn your own living, as he puts it in verse 12. So he gives the example in his own life and ministry that he didn't want to burden them by, by placing his financial needs upon them. Now they're the reasons for work, pretty basic reasons, aren't they? But they're the reasons he gives. And he also gives advice about the manner of work. They're to work in quietness and in privacy, in the sense of doing their own work and earning their own living. They're not to be troublemakers and stirrers in this area of life. They're to just get on with their job and do the task that's set before them. He gives the same kind of advice in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where he says that you're to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we charged you, so that you may command the respect of outsiders and be dependent on nobody. See, it's the idea of financial independence, so that you're not a burden to anybody else, so that you might work in quietness and, and get on with the task, so that you won't bring any discredit upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they're very crude as reasons for work. And you may feel that they are unsatisfying and unsatisfactory as giving you very much guidance about work. Because which, which faculty should I go into? Which career, once in that faculty, should I pursue? Because so many things open up to us, so many big decisions we have to make as to whether I will follow this course or that or that or that. And I could do this and that and I could... Oh, there's just so many possibilities, aren't there? I guess most of you went along to the uh, 
vocational guidance tests that I went to, and most of you had exactly the same results that I got in there. You were told that you could do whatever you want to do. <laughs> it took them six hours to find that out for me. I've never actually been quite so frustrated with somebody as when he told me. I, uh, thankful, I suppose, that I didn't actually lose my temper with him. My father was a printer. He retired last year, and when we were having a, uh, I think, a birthday party or something like that for him, I raised the question of printing with him. Because having a small family business, I have done a fair amount of printing over the years. As in those, those of you who have been in family businesses, you know exactly what I mean. You do everything that's going. And with all due respects to uh, printers amongst us, I found printing a very tedious and difficult job. I'm sure that uh, with limited intelligence that I was given the more limiting areas of the work, but it really was tedious that nearly every operation that took place had to take place thousands of times. And I, being the operator, found it rather tedious, I think is the word, to go through that same simple operation thousands of times, to say nothing of being dead slow at it and therefore making it longer and harder still. And I could not really understand why Dad would choose to go into printing. I certainly had made the choice myself very early on not to, as had my two brothers. And I couldn't really understand why he had chosen to. And I said to him, why did you, know, why did you go into it? Back in 19, whenever it was, a long time ago. And he politely, because he is a polite man, told me that my question was utter foolishness. Because in the country town in which he grew up, in the very first half of this century, in the early part of this century, he pointed out that there were only about one or two apprenticeships every year. His father died and left him with five or six smaller brothers and sisters to be looking after. And so before the age at which you were allowed to leave school, his mother dragged him out of school to apply for the one or two apprenticeships that were offered in the town. He was given it only because of the economic plight of, the, of his mother. And there are another 100 or 200 boys who applied for the same job. Really, a very stupid question, isn't it? Why did I ask it then? That's stupid. No, that's not rude. Why did, why did I ask it if it was that stupid? Well, because I've been born with a silver spoon in my mouth like you have. I really don't understand what poverty like that is. I mean, we had hard times, certainly. Our family used to eat tripe and chocos like everybody else in <laughs> post-war years. You know, the, things were not easy. But they were never like that. And when I finished school, which my father wasn't allowed to, he didn't finish primary school. When I finished school, I was then given any number of faculties I could go into, any number of scholarships to pay my way into those faculties, any number of jobs I could choose afterwards, and indeed, I went back and started another faculty too. As you, as you can do. And that choice we have is the choice of affluence. And we take it for granted. But the vast majority of the world do not have that option. There is no option like It's a question of whether you work or you don't work, whether you eat or you don't eat. That's what's real about life. And so many of the choices we think are important are really non-events. They are completely relevant. But worse than that, we actually entertain a value of work and an attitude of work which is straight out pagan. For like the pagans around about us, we associate status with the occupation that a person follows. We think because he followed X career or Y career that he's somehow better than somebody else who's doing A or B. We do think that the... Uh, um, I was very careful about not naming anybody who's here, you see. We do think that the mining engineer, am I safe there? 
No, I'm not. No. <laughs> we do think that the professional man is above the street sweeper. That gets most people one way or the other. We do think that they're, they're better off. They're better kinds of people. They are more important. A friend of mine who goes to the church at St Ives, a lecturer at our university, when asked what he did, so the other day he said, oh, I'm a plumber. He said he noticed that the conversation kind of phased off the subject very quickly because everybody else in the group was willing to say that uh, this and that important, significant thing, indeed, if they weren't, they had a title that sounded important anyway. But we, we measure people by what they do. It's a terrible pagan idea. And closely akin to it, we find fulfilment as persons by what we do. We look for jobs that will be meaningful and satisfying when the basic Christian reason for work is so as to fill your face. That is the reason. So as to have enough money to give those who are in need. That is the reason for work. Not to find satisfaction. If you find it, well and good. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not sinful because you enjoy your job. Well and good. But the book of Proverbs would say, and the book of Ecclesiastes would say, enjoy your work, whatever it is. The Christian man will find enjoyment in his work if he's digging the ditches as much as if he's digging into people's appendix. Right? That is an irrelevance. Which part he is digging into? That really does not matter, provided he is working honestly with his hands. That is what counts, that he's doing a faithful, just and right job towards his employer and towards the people for whom he is serving in the execution of his work, so that he can honestly pick up his money and go out and buy the food that he needs. And we think that some jobs are somehow more important in their contribution to society than other jobs. Let me assure you, as one who hates gardening, I need vegetable growers like anything. I really do, because my face needs them. I need the vegetables to keep away the diverticulitis and the other terrible things that some of you people tell me about. I need that. I need those vegetables in my system for the sake of scurvy and the rest. And I cannot grow them, except chocos, which I can't abide. <laughs> and I'm sure it won't help me. I need people. They, they make a very valuable contribution. But yet, they are put in a very low status socially, aren't they? Because their, their job is not as meaningful, is not as significant in its contribution to society as being a, whatever you want to fill in at that point. We've got all kinds of very pagan notions now, ideas about work and the value of work. And because we have those pagan ideas which really have come out of our affluence rather than anything else, because we have those, we're becoming worshippers of work. We're becoming workaholics in the sense that we can't stop working, which is the great problem of professional people, and to that extent the exact reverse of the Thessalonian situation, you couldn't get them working. Our problem is we can't stop working because we think that is where my life is. That is where I pour my heart and soul into, is to doing this work, because that's what I'm living for. We're not realising that the basic reason for doing that work is so as to feed your face. You really are replacing the eternal things of God and the great, great truths of the Gospel for just the materialism of feeding your face, albeit very sophisticated in its fashion. But that's what it is. It's basically getting back to that same thing. Maybe I'll be feeding it with caviar rather than some of the other things like Big Ben pies. But still, that's what it's all about, that you work. Yet we pour ourselves into work as if it is all that really matters in my life, rather than seeing that work is a right and proper thing. It's a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing for us to do. But it stands underneath the judgment of God. It stands underneath the judgment of the gospel. And it is not nearly as significant as the gospel. For on the last great day when you stand before Jesus, he's not going to say, which faculty did you go into? He really isn't going to say, what profession were you in? He's not going to take any notice at all of the fact that you've got three Nobel Prize Prizes 
All appealants are thrown in. That really will matter not one whit. In fact, given human pride, it must likely be to your disadvantage to have them. It won't matter how much money you have left over in the bank account or how many shares and stock you may have carried through the years. It won't matter even how many people you have fed through your activities. No, no, those things do not ultimately matter. What matters is whether you believe the gospel of Jesus or not. That is what is going to divide humanity on that last great day. And if the future of, the, if the future of history is, is as the gospel says it is, if the gospel, in other words, is true, that God, Christ is coming in vengeance to judge the world and split off mankind so that some will share in his glory forever and others will be cast away from it forever, if that is what is all, life is all about, then you see the utter futility of putting your life in your work, in your career. That is not what it is about. Your career must be subservient to the gospel, not the gospel subservient to your career. You must make career choices in accordance with the gospel. So you will work certainly not in immoral things like theft. You will work certainly as honest people giving your duty to your employer. But you may make choices that won't climb, you won't climb up the ladder so fast or so high because that will interfere with your evangelism. You'll, you won't take jobs on Saturday night because it will interfere with your Sunday school teaching on Sunday morning. Because Sunday school teaching is ultimately much more important than the work you do on Saturday. You may not think Sunday school, they're only little kids, aren't they? Half a dozen little children sitting around reading the Bible. How can that, if the gospel is the gospel, it is vital to their eternal destiny that they be taught the word of God. And if that is your responsibility, then you be there. And you be there prepared. And you curtail your activities, socially or, in this case, in work. So as to make sure you're there and you're there prepared to teach the word of God. Because it really is not as important your work as the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll take, you'll take choices both in the short term and in the long term in your career, which will tell against your careers compared to the non-Christians around about you, because you believe in the gospel. Now that will be a tremendous liberation to you. Liberation from the point of view of ever being a workaholic, of course. But it's a right thing, because while it is wrong to worship the work, and I suggest none of you would think that that's right if you're in the slightest bit Christian here amongst us. You know it's wrong to worship work. You need to be free from it. And as long as you think that your work is vitally important, you'll find it very hard to be freed from it. The more important you think it is, the more difficult it will be to be free from it. But it is a perfectly right and appropriate thing to worship the gospel. That is not actually even idolatry. For that is what is being said, that Paul wants them to pray that the gospel may be glorified, may be worshipped, that men and women might say, what a tremendous message that you are declaring to us. That news is the best news I've heard all day, excuse Mr. Roger Clemson. That news is so tremendous. That is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in all my life, to know of my salvation in eternity, and to know that all men, all men and women, everywhere, anybody, be they street sweeper or, or professor, doesn't matter who they are, can come into that sharing, that tremendous love of God for mankind. That is marvellous news. See, it's a right and appropriate thing to worship the gospel. To give your life, as Paul did, to the proclamation of the gospel. That is a right and appropriate thing to do. Completely right. And therefore very, very different to the work that you might like to take on in your career. Well, we're faced with the short-term problems right now, aren't we? You've been given a yellow slip. I don't want anybody to be missing lectures, leaving work, in order to go and preach the gospel around the university campus. But some of you might make, have to make a choice between not getting a distinction in this session and getting a credit instead. 
That is a choice. It's a very real choice. Some of you might have to make a decision about working later in the session, a little bit harder, in order to take some time off now. That is a choice. It's a very real choice. It depends just what you think is more important, doesn't it? Some of you might even have to make a choice of giving up going to the pictures one night in order to get your work done, in order to be able to go out and share the gospel with others. That is a choice. It depends on the values you place on the gospel. I don't have much difficulty working out what value Paul places upon it. My difficulty is in being as godly, in the doing of it. And some of us have to make long-term career choices. Indeed, I believe all of us do. To place ourselves in the position where we will best be able to serve the gospel rather than ourselves, our careers, or the work that might so involve us and engage our minds. That is, we might have to make real choices of serving God in another part of the world where the gospel is not preached, another part of New South Wales where it's not preached, in a lower capacity than the work we could do, taking only two or three days' work, part-time work, in order to preach. There are all kinds of choices that you can make. But unless you see the importance of the gospel in contrast to the, your work, you'll never make them. 